Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally air Monday mornings on KPFA just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to new developments in the world of COVID-19, a segment we call Corona Calls. Our guest as he is most weeks is Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. Uh, I want to start with a, a big paper, uh, some of whose microbiology eludes me, that was published in Science Translational Medicine. I gave up on the paper itself and tried to slog through the write-up uh, in Dr. Eric Topol's Ground Truths newsletter. Uh, it suggests one mechanism behind the constellation of symptoms that we've come to call long COVID could be the virus attacking mitochondria, uh, which what, what I remember from grade school uh, microbiology is that these are the power plants of the human cell. So <laughs> what, what would it mean for the virus to be attacking mitochondria in the first place? Well, what it would mean would be that it would be an explanation for why not everybody, but why a lot of people with long COVID and not just long COVID, but some other post-viral chronic conditions, um, such as uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, um, a commonly used name for that, uh, it would give an explanation for this. That is their cells just don't have the energy, can't generate the energy for the body to work optimally. And one of the uh, really nice things in this paper was not only did, they, did the authors show that the virus might influence uh, or could influence the mechanisms that generate energy in the mitochondria, but that it did it in the mitochondria in many organs, so not just one organ system, like it could happen in the liver, the heart, kidneys, etc. So my understanding is this is like a multi-pronged approach they did experimental studies in hamsters and mice, presumably because they have similar cellular structures. They also examined swabs of humans who had COVID-19, and they did autopsies on uh, people who had died with it. Um, like, how how solid is the, the methodology here? How much confidence do you put in the conclusions of the report that this is happening? Right. The, the methodology is solid. Um, good scientists doing, I think, very good science. The real caveat that you're getting at is that uh, we're a long way from really what is still a hypothesis with a little bit of science to support it to really establishing that this is the cause of um, some of the people with uh, post uh, COVID infection, long symptoms. Uh, so we just have to, it's going to take time. Science, as, as you said so many times, Brian, it, uh, moves, um, it moves somewhat slowly because it has to be so careful. So 
help me understand. Here's where I got hung up. What is the mechanism by which COVID would continue causing fatigue through its attack on the mitochondria long after the actual infection has been overcome by the body's immune system? Well, the authors posited that the that COVID, the virus, could change the way the genes are expressing themselves in the mitochondria. And those changes would have an effect on the ability of the mitochondria to generate as much energy as they normally could. So that seems to be the nexus here. But the how the virus, SARS-CoV-2, can do that or could do that to the genes still remains a question mark. So what they've confirmed at this point is that the virus does attach to a part of the mitochondria, one of the proteins on, on the surface of the mitochondria. Um, what, what have they confirmed beyond that? Beyond that is, it's, could it change the expression, how the genes express themselves? That is how the genes communicate to mm -hmm. the um, other parts of the mitochondrial cell to what path, biochemical pathways they would use to generate energy. Um, you know, you, you begin your discussion with saying that um, it was really difficult to slog your way through this. Uh, Eric Topol did a very nice job trying to do that, but it was a tough paper. Yeah. Um, I, I guess the bottom line question for anyone suffering with this is does having this hypothesis of a mechanism move us any closer to having treatments for people suffering from a kind of chronic fatigue type constellation of long COVID symptoms. Right. I'm, I actually sent the paper to one of my colleagues at UC Berkeley asking uh, for his thoughts. Uh, I haven't heard back from him yet. I would have, would have um, liked to have had that for this morning. Um, the idea is that if it is gene expression, we do have some medications. Um, one that's really widely available, metformin, that could possibly, and really totally theoretically, could possibly reverse that, uh, the effect of the virus on the mitochondria. I really have to emphasize that there's, all of this is really in the hypothesis realm at this point, um, with just a little bit of science to support it and not much in humans. So we're a long way away from having any answers here, but it, it is, it's opening a crack in a door now. And if, if this turns out to be the case, um, and there are medications that could reverse the effects of the virus on how genes express in the mitochondria, for a lot of people with long COVID and other post-viral syndromes, uh, it could theoretically make a difference, but we're, we're, again, a long way away from knowing that. Our guest is Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health, and he is here to answer your questions for Corona Calls. If you want to call in a question, the number is 1-800-958-9008. That is 1-800-958-9008. Uh, Dr. Swartzberg, I'll, I'll start with one from the inbox. Steve wrote in from Fairfax. He says he has COVID presently. He decided not to get Paxlovid, um, and he's doing fine, but he is concerned uh, about ensuring he does not pose a threat to many of his friends who are in their 70s. He asks, 
How often and for how long should I test myself for a possible rebound? Got it. Um, I'm glad he's doing fine. Fortunately, that's the way it is with most people. Um, after five days, on day six, if your symptoms are essentially gone, are almost completely gone, it's very unlikely you're still contagious. To add some degree, and the CDC, that's the CDC's position, um, given that you're a, a, quote, normal host, that is, you don't have, you're not immunocompromised for some reason. Um, what I would suggest is adding to his assurance that he won't spread the virus to others would be to add on day six in the morning uh, a rapid test, a home test. And if that's negative, it gives you another degree of assurance that the virus is, you don't have enough virus to transmit to anybody else. So that's, again, if your symptoms are just about gone and it's past day five since your symptoms began, not since a positive test, but since your symptoms began, if you test the following day and it's negative, it's very unlikely you're going to transmit. If there's a, any kind of question in your mind, if you're going to be around somebody who's elderly or immunocompromised, that is somebody who's at increased risk for a bad outcome for, from COVID, um, just wait another four or five days or do another test in 48 hours. So on day eight, um, those are some of the things that can really add layers of safety, getting you not to 100% safety, but really close to that. I mean, I, I, I got rebound COVID when I had COVID. Um, I was symptom-free in that five-day window. And, and if my vision were just a little bit worse, I wouldn't even be able to see the shadow of a positive on a home rapid test. But two days later, my tests turned darkly positive. Like they, I was getting a stronger positive line than I had while I was sick um, with almost no symptoms coming back to them. And I kept testing positive till I was like 17 days out from my first day uh, of infection. I, I, I presumed that, that those dark positive tests means I posed a threat to the people around me. Doesn't that suggest the, the, the risk window from rebound COVID is pretty long? Yes, it can be. Um, the so I was giving the scenario for acute COVID, and I, I apologize for not mm -hmm. addressing Steve's question more directly. Um, the chances of somebody getting long COVID, excuse me, getting rebound COVID, are data would suggest maybe eight percent, ten percent at the highest. If you didn't take Paxlovid, if you took Paxlovid, the chances are a few percentage points even higher. Um, so with long with rebound COVID, you're going to rebound with symptomatology. So taking Steve's scenario, let's say he's fine at day five, on day six, he tests, he's negative, and he's feeling 99% well. Um, he's not contagious at that point or very unlikely to be. But let's say on day nine or 10, he starts to develop symptoms again, classic rebound. Usually it's not as severe as the initial symptoms you had, but rebounding and he tests and he's positive he has to assume that it's just like having had another episode of it is essentially like having had another episode of covid and he's back into isolation for a minimum of five days since those mm -hmm. rebounds started 
Then he tests again, and if he's still positive, he stays in isolation until he his testing is negative or at least 10 days since the rebound began uh, has, have passed. So that's um, it sounds like you were really out there towards that 10th day after your rebound occurred, Brian. I, I'm exceptional. Um, <laughs> what to to Steve's question? Um, how how many days of clear tests? Uh, after how many days of clear tests post infection can he just totally let his guard down, stop testing for a prospective rebound case? Right. So most cases of rebound are going to occur within a few days of the acute episode. So you get well, and then a few days later, you start to get symptoms again. It would be unusual to see rebound occurring 10 or 15 days later. There's been, there have been a few cases that have been reported out to 10 days from when you got well, but that would be very unusual. So I would say roughly he's feeling fine, and it's day 10 or 12 after his first acute infection began. Um, the chances of rebound are very, very small. All right. 1-800-958-9008 for your COVID-19 questions. That's 1-800-958-9008. Next question comes via the inbox from Mary, who is here in Berkeley. Uh, Her friend, who is over 65, just got COVID in the New Orleans area, where her friend's doctor apparently told her she shouldn't take Paxlovid because it does not work with the new variant. Uh, Mary wants to know if there's any truth to this. Is Paxlovid losing efficacy as COVID evolves? Well, the simple answer is there's absolutely no truth that, um, unfortunately, her friend's doctor was misinformed. Um, There have been rare reports of decreased sensitivity of the virus to Paxlovid, but they've been so rare that they've been reported in the literature. Um, we're not seeing any of these new variants um, behave differently to the drug than we saw some of the older Omicron variants or some of the old uh, subvariants or some of the other variants of, of uh, SARS-CoV-2. So it's, um, it's unfortunate that, um, that the person got the wrong advice. All right, let's go to the phone lines. Uh, first up, we have Amy in Oakland. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, and thank you for the show, as always. Um, I'm a pediatrician, and I have a friend who had the rebound phenomenon after taking Paxlovid. And my question is, why are doctors so reluctant to prescribe a second course of Paxlovid unless you're the president of the United States? Or or, or Dr. Fauci. Um, I understand that he got a second course as well. That's a great question, Amy, and the only answer I can arrive at is that it hasn't been well studied whether Paxlovid should work. That said, there's every reason to think it would with the rebound just as well as with the initial infection. So I think, as I said earlier, typically rebound is not as severe as the primary infection. So if you had a typical case of COVID um, with the first infection, it's unlikely the rebound is going to be as bad as that. So a lot of people often don't take it uh, because of that. But if if it was somebody who was at much higher risk of a bad outcome and they were feeling pretty sick with the rebound, um, while there's no data to show it's going to help, there's no reason to think it shouldn't. Yes, and my friend did have a pretty bad rebound and nobody would prescribe it. So 
Thank you. Yeah, again, it's that's what, which I'm, as your physician, I'm, I know you understand. Uh, without the data, it makes people often reluctant to do that. Now, that may have been before Paxlovid was approved by the FDA, um, so doctors can now prescribe it for, quote, off-label use. That is where um, it can be prescribed for things other than what the drug was originally pr- approved for. So it makes it a lot easier for the patient's physician to prescribe Paxlovid uh, with that rebound episode if it's pretty bad. Yeah, and the, this the lack of data within is... the last three months. Mm. Thank, thanks for that call, Amy. I'm sorry to hear about what, what's happened to your friend. Dr. Schwartzberg, the, the lack of data is really perplexing. I mean, on the one hand, you have this incredibly effective treatment, Paxlovid. On the other hand, it's basically, you know, gone out with uh, the best guess dosage that, that they rolled out in the first trials of the drug. Like, why why don't we at this point have trial data on whether six days of Paxlovid uh, rather than five days gets rid of the rebound effect or for how much help a second round of it is. Right. Some of these studies are ongoing now. Um, so we will have some answers to that. But what, what you're getting at is, is why don't we have more, your question is why don't we have more data? And, and the, the answer really is that these studies are, are quite expensive to do. Um, and once the drug is approved, there's less, much less incentive for the pharmaceutical company to go ahead and do them. Um, but mm. the the longer the, uh, the the treatment with Paxlovid, for example, with people with rebound, there are studies ongoing with that, so we should have some answers to that. One of the other questions that you were getting at, Brian, was uh, if five days is good, would 10 days be better, and would that prevent rebound? We don't... Uh, the few papers that have been published on this don't suggest that at this point, but they're very preliminary, so we need much more data on that. And we should have that at some point. It's also important to remember that Paxlovid hasn't been around that long. So while it feels uh, like glac- that things are moving in terms of the science at glacial speed, it really, um, we've had, we got this drug two years into the, two and a half years into the pandemic, which was pretty fast to have a good antiviral drug. So um, it just, it is frustrating right at this moment. Um, we will have more data as time goes by. All right, let's go inland for our next call in Martinez. John is on the line. Good morning, John. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good. How about you? Fine. I was questioning, uh, I doubt very much, sir, you remember me. I was a student of yours. You signed off on a, a master of science degree in biochemistry at Cal, and I was wondering, how is it possible to develop a vaccine for something that does not exist in no less than six to nine months? And that's my question to you. I'll take the answer off the air. Have a good day, and God bless. I had a little trouble hearing uh, John, Brian. Could you repeat his question? I, I think he said he was a former student of yours, and he asked how it was possible to develop a vaccine so fast. I, I think he meant for COVID. Got it. Well, it, it seemed very fast, but it was really a 35 to almost 40 year process of developing um, messenger RNA vaccines. So we've had over three decades of science leading to that point. You know, I've often looked at the pandemic um, when it occurred in, uh, started to occur in China in 2019 and then exploded here in 2020 um, as a perfect storm where we 
had underfunded public health for decades. Um, the government wasn't well prepared to respond appropriately, et cetera. Um, it was a perfect storm from the, for the virus. But it was also on the flip side, it was very fortunate that we had been doing research on mRNA vaccines or the development of mRNA vaccines for decades. And uh, it came at a perfect time where we were able to, with a lot of assistance um, in terms of a lot of money being funneled in from the government, um, with a lot of assistance to get it out very quickly. And what what were mRNA vaccines being principally developed for? Obviously, it it wasn't COVID. Like, what were the hopes when as the platform was being developed? Well, the hopes were that it would be it would be vaccines that could be really tailored precisely not only to the pathogen that we wanted to uh, get protection from, but tailored to specific ways that that pathogen that that organism causes disease, it could cause diseaseness, for example, with COVID, how it enters our body, could we block that with, with our immunity? And once it gets into our body, can we neutralize it? So it was, uh, as opposed to vaccines that had been produced um, in the past, that were, in, by and large, they were directed towards the entire organism with the uh, so we developed lots of different kinds of antibodies, many of which we didn't need to develop. This was more precision. And it was uh, a vac- mRNA vaccines could be changed. That is, you could change their coverage, how they worked um, to protect against a particular virus or bacterium, for example, very, very quickly. Uh, you could really just put the, a new genetic code in and you have a new mRNA vaccine. So rapid production, um, easy production, and a really, instead of trying to shoot the organism with a um, shotgun, we could use a rifle. Mm. And this is, um, my, my understanding is mRNA vaccines are now being tested uh, against forms of cancer as well, immunotherapy? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the, the potential is um, the potential is enormous. These mRNA vaccines, and then if you think about the potential with CRISPR, just these two things that have come to our consciousness um, in the last very few years, but have been worked on for a long time. Um, it's really exciting to think about what we're going to have in terms of tools for cancer, for infectious diseases, and genetic diseases. Um, it, it's it's very exciting time in biology. Dr. Schwartzberg, we'll leave it there for this week. Thank you so much for speaking to us. You're welcome. Thank you very much. All right, that does it for this week's Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for next week, we've set up a brand shiny new email address for you to do that. It's coronacalls at kpfa.org. Again, that's coronacalls at kpfa.org. Or you can catch us live Monday right after 7.30 news headlines at KPFA. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. and We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Teekert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.